Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, I am here in the studio in person with my guest, Dr. Bill Conley. He is the Chief Technology Officer at Mercury Systems, and we are going to discuss uh, challenges in the headlines today with microelectronics ecosystem and supply chain. Before we get started, I want to thank our episode sponsor, Northrop Grumman Corporation. Northrop Grumman provides full-spectrum superiority. Their innovative, multifunction, interoperable solutions ensure warfighters have full-spectrum dominance to make real-time decisions no matter the environment or domain. Learn more at ngc.com slash EW. All right, I'm here with Dr. Bill Conley, Chief Technology Officer at Mercury Systems. He is well known to the EMSO community, uh, not only in his current role, but also in his previous roles as Director of EW in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and also at the uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, also known as DARPA. Dr. Conley, it's great to have you here in person on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks, Ken. It's uh, awesome to be here with you in person today. Well, we have a lot to get to today on an issue that is receiving a lot of attention across DOD, industry, and, and Congress. There's a lot to unpack, so I wanted to kind of start with the big picture, and, and we'll try to get into the specifics. Every day in the news, we see stories on microelectronics and, and how the supply chain is impacted. And typically, we see these headlines that'll take months, if not years, to correct. So I want to start with talking about why this is such an important issue today and how we got here. And then if you could talk a little bit about why, from an EMSO community perspective, it's an issue that we need to be paying close attention to. So, Ken, first off, thanks for having me on the podcast today to talk about this critical issue around microelectronics and what it means for, uh, for our community. It is a very dynamic ecosystem that we now are living in. But I actually want to back up and talk a little bit about the history of Silicon Valley, which in large part actually really got its start doing R&D to support electronic warfare during World War II. And so many of that kind of initial companies coming out of Silicon Valley actually got their start with government funding doing EW. And so when we look at what's happened today, what we're really seeing is the microelectronics supply chain due to COVID. In a world before COVID, we all would go down, we'd buy a car, we'd sit in it, we'd commute to work on a daily basis. But we really only had one computer that we would sit at on a daily basis. And so in comparison to today, we really shifted our priorities in terms of what we buy. Ultimately, that resulted in a disruption in terms of what's getting built in the planning cycle associated with microelectronics. But I think is really germane and important to the EMSO community, and really the reason for talking about it here in this forum, is the fact that all of our EMSO capabilities are underpinned by being a software-defined system, and that's really the capability is defined by that ability to access the state-of-the-art microelectronics and integrating them in a way that meets our requirements, be that latency, power, bandwidth, beamforming, for example. And so that access to the underlying electronics really gives us the MSO capability we know today. You mentioned, you know, a lot of this is, is due to COVID-19, but did COVID-19, did that put the spotlight on existing 
issues or problems that were not receiving attention or did it accelerate certain gaps or did it actually just cause them and put us in the position we are in today? I would say a, a little bit of all three. And so from an accelerating the gap standpoint, fundamentally, if you back up to kind of the, the 1980s and you think about, you know, the first VCR and the first camcorder that we had, those were really cool. But through the 90s and the 2000s, the proliferation of wireless technology mirrored up with, uh, with silicon technology really resulted in this global community around, you know, be it now today 5G, right, but cellular communications and ultimately kind of that proliferation of electronic warfare, roughly things of interest to us as a community in EMSO across all of our daily lives. So there was a part there. In the 1980s, there also were changes in the tax code that really drove the offshoring of microelectronics manufacturing. And so while we, the United States, still have substantial investments in the design tools associated with building those microelectronics, much of the intellectual property associated with manufacturing it is now resident across Southeast Asia and kind of the Pacific Rim. And so that part, obviously, has been playing out for four decades. Due to COVID, though, and when you're running a fab, you have a very, you know, kind of a two to three year horizon that you're always planning. What is it you're going to be producing? That initial market disruption and the changes of everybody looking at their supply chain and trying to predict, what do I need to build? What is a consumer in a few months going to want to buy? A lot of people that had orders in decided to cancel those orders, and a lot of people that didn't have orders in went, egads, there is this massive demand. We all remember the demand for toilet paper, right? Something that shouldn't be that hard, but obviously created a supply chain disruption. Similarly, I think if we look at most of us today, we actually have a home office fully set up with monitors, cameras, um, you know, headsets and everything. We have an office in the office equally set up, and many of us still have a travel bag that still has a bunch of electronics in it as well. And so we've seen really a dramatic increase in terms of that connectivity that we now expect to have. At the same time, many of us didn't, you know, go into the office for over a year. We dramatically reduced the number of miles we were driving. And so it's a combination of all three of the factors you identified earlier. And you mentioned, you know, since you know, World War II, you know, with Silicon Valley, a lot of the early technology there was obviously related to electronic warfare. And, and today, it's clear that, you know, DOD programs require the state-of-the-art microelectronics. But there are limitations across the board on that. And so I wanted you to discuss a little bit of the dependency that DoD has on microelectronics. On, on From the Crow's Nest in previous episodes, we've covered a lot of these topics of, you know, uh, information networks and, and, and the JADC2 construct. Obviously, there's EMSO itself and other things like artificial intelligence. So could you talk a little bit about how DoD has evolved and where it's at today in terms of its dependency on microelectronics? So, Ken, another excellent question. I would actually argue, though, in asking the question, you actually jumped to a very high-end part of the microelectronics ecosystem. If you actually back up and, and just think about a tactical vehicle that has an engine and needs a basic engine controller, that's a microelectronic system. What about the jet engine in an aircraft that, again, is this very elaborate control system that, again, depends on access to modern microcontrollers to make that engine run? And so once we can do those foundational things that actually allow us to build the platform, we then can start talking about the payloads and the warfighting capability we want to bring in. But is that part of the problem where we automatically want to jump to the construct and we forget about what's right in front of us and the some of the foundational things that we have to take care of? So from a supply chain management standpoint, I think that the dependencies and the understanding of what are those core foundational microelectronics they're going to allow us to build the platform, build the vehicle, get the controller on that engine. We understand what those are, but there's only a finite fabrication capability. There's only a finite packaging capability. 
we have to make sure that we're putting the right priority on those along with the right priority on these advanced exquisite capabilities we're really excited around you know, JADC2 and the ability to do streaming analytics on all of this, you know, really high quality data that's coming in to ultimately allow a commander to make a faster decision, you know, go around the OODA loop quicker and better than an adversary commander. We can't forget about those foundational pieces that are essential for the basics. At the same time, we also need access to those advanced nodes that allow us that capability to do real-time streaming analytics on all of this data. We like to say that we live in the information age, I would actually say in many ways, we live in the data age. One look at my email inbox, I have a lot of data. What I would do to know what that information is, but for a battlefield commander, the number of sensors out there that are capturing data, but not necessarily giving decision quality data, how do we process that in near real time and how do we turn that into something actionable where we have data the necessary quality to make a good decision? How do we know it wasn't spoofed by an adversary? How do we know it wasn't corrupted or hacked in some way, shape, or form? So it's really, how do we have security? How do we have trust? How do we have the necessary explainability as you hit on artificial intelligence earlier? How do we make sure we get that right so our commanders on a battlefield can make the best decision and do so quicker than a competitor? And and it all goes back to how we make those products. And you mentioned how we prioritize certain things. And when you look at the supply chain, there's a number of Gaps, and I, I want to go kind of go through them because it's easy to hone in on one particular gap or, or or talk about one perspective, but it's a wide range of things from materials, the availability of rare earth elements to the volume. Like, how much do you produce? Particularly in the defense sector, you're talking low volume versus commercial sector, which is high volume. Infrastructure, human capital, I think, is a huge issue. So, not to put too much onto your plate here on the next question, but let, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the role that these specific gaps play in the bigger picture. So maybe we can talk a little bit about materials and just kind of work our way through some of these gaps. So one of the things I really like about the question is it sets me up to think about this problem holistically. Many times what we find is a lot of excitement around the fab, right, and the ability to produce this advanced silicon. But what does it take to run a fab? Well, there's a bunch of silicon. There's the wafers, right? That basic building block that goes in. There's organic substrates that you need if you want to build an interposer and make sure that you have that robust. There's everything associated with the packaging side that you also have to get right. And so what I would say, you know, and the question really set me up to talk about this, is you have to view it holistically. You have to view it as a entirety of the value stream. The other thing that I would actually say is I think also really critical is thinking about your supply chain and what's acceptable during peacetime but also being prepared for what happens during a conflict. And so how do we think about quality, security, trust, and what's different about that in peacetime versus during a conflict? Could you elaborate on that a little bit in terms of how that affects these individual pieces? Absolutely. So many of the foundational materials, like an organic substrate or a silicon wafer, I'm very comfortable if that was sourced globally during a a relatively peacetime, right? A quality inspector being that first-line person to go ahead and receive the wafer and take a look at it can say, yes, this is the quality we need to go into our next step of our process, or no, it is not. However, during a conflict, when you think about where do many of those substrates and where do many of those wafers come from today, it's somewhere in very close proximity to the South or East China Sea. And so when we think about what are the consequences of having a supply chain that fundamentally basically says you have to have logistics access from a global trade standpoint through either or both the South and the East China Sea. Similarly, you could look at the same thing if things were to heat up in Europe going into Asia. You know, what does that mean from a global supply chain side and actually having the ability to move all the materials 
and execute each of those steps. And if you try to address the problem from kind of a peacetime perspective, you could still end up in a much larger problem come a wartime period because there are certain attributes that you just have to address specifically when it comes to wartime because those supplies are going to dry up. Yep. And so many, many of those raw materials, as someone who enjoys history, it is shocking to me in the era we live in today how much is still governed by geography and how much is still governed by access to the raw materials. Earlier, you hit a little bit on trust and the issue of zero trust approach to uh, enable acquisition of uh, assured microelectronics has gotten a lot of media attention recently. How do we strengthen assurance metrics against the likelihood of that security vulnerabilities could be introduced into a component at any time and with little or maybe even just insufficient detection? So I think it's a really rich area to talk about and candidly one we could explore for several hours. And it's also an area, you know, from my role as the chief technology officer at Mercury Systems, I spend a lot of time thinking about. From a framework standpoint, though, what I think is really germane to the audience today is there's kind of a natural balance between how strategically valuable is a particular system, how trusted is the supply chain that goes into it, and how much security can you add on kind of in operational time that allows you to have more confidence in that system. At the same time, from the business side of that, we're globally seeing an increased focus on protecting intellectual property. And so one of the best ways to really be able to do that is through compartmentalizing your development and your production. And as I use the word compartmentalization for many listeners on the podcast, I'm not talking about special security protections and compartmentalizing from a security side, but actually compartmentalizing through more of a commercial intellectual property to side. And so many of the principles of DevSecOps that are now getting used for software development are also equally applicable for what's possible on the hardware side, right? That ability to have a portion of your team which has full access to the underlying code, the underlying design, the ability to go in and modify. But the next really critical part as you think about DevSecOps is that automated testing that every piece automatically goes through. When we think about something going through a hardware-centric supply chain, how do we bring in that principle? How do we do more quality acceptance testing to make sure that a module, at whatever level that may be, is behaving in the way that you expect? And then in, at the same time, from a security standpoint, it may be something as easy as just a firewall that makes sure you understand the data going on and off of that microcontroller and making sure it's behaving in the way that you expect. It may be something about how the system boots up, right? Windows has a safe mode that it can boot up into for a reason. Similarly, what does that mean for a military system if you want to have a guaranteed safe mode? And that's going to take constant testing and evaluation of a system throughout development from, you know, the earliest components to the actual final in-the-field system. Like you're, you're going to have to test it and evaluate it constantly to make sure that that vulnerability or there is not a vulnerability that's injected at any point. Completely agree with you there, right? And so at, at each major step you're going to be testing, you're going to end up with design artifacts. Overall, digital engineering, I think, really helps us with this. As you build a digital thread, you actually begin to develop that digital chain of custody that goes along with that product the entire way through. One of my favorite quotes, though, around zero trust actually comes from Lisa Porter, uh, the former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, and likely paraphrasing her a little bit, one of the things she said is, you obviously don't want to use a compromised supplier when you think about zero trust. At the same time, though, there isn't the ability when the military ecosystem consumes only 1% of the microelectronics used globally. If it's only 1%, we can't go to a strategy that totally depends 
on cleared facilities and cleared personnel to be able to go through and execute everything. We simply aren't enough of the market to be able to do that. So it's too costly to fix, but it's too important not to. Providing full-spectrum superiority across all domains, that's defining possible. Giving warfighters the freedom to act across the spectrum, especially in highly contested battle spaces, can seem impossible. At Northrop Grumman, we've pushed the boundaries of possible across the spectrum for decades. Today, our cutting-edge, interoperable, multifunction technologies are a revolutionary leap in spectrum dominance. How revolutionary? Imagine detecting the precise location of an adversary long before they ever detect you. Or better yet, denying or degrading an adversary's system without them being able to do a thing about it. Your freedom to shape the spectrum is an overwhelming advantage in every domain. An advantage made possible by Northrop Grumman's unique, software-defined, open, safe, secure architecture solutions. It's all part of our commitment to ensure our warfighters have full-spectrum dominance to make real-time decisions, no matter the environment. That's defining possible. Learn more at ngc.com ew. So, so before we get to solving the, the world's problems on this issue, I wanted to talk a little bit about a new report that was just released from the Hudson Institute, written by Brian Clark and Dan Pat, called Regaining the Digital Advantage. And there's a lot of good information. I hope to have them on a future podcast, uh, so I won't, don't want to steal their thunder. But they establish uh, an interesting framework for assessing the microelectronics ecosystem, and they go through basically four categories or terms, resilience, assurance, demand, and new value. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how those pieces come together in this ecosystem. Absolutely. And so both Brian and Dan are good friends. And as a result of that... Which is why I'm also comfortable asking you this question, you know? (laughs) Perfect. Uh, Right. And so, you know, I think from a framework standpoint, they hit it out of the park, right? And so one of my earlier comments around, you know, people get really excited about the fab, but they don't think about everything else that goes into feeding it and everything else that you have to do after you've gotten there. And so with that in mind, from a a resiliency standpoint, right, that kind of goes back to my comments around what do you do during peacetime and what do you do during wartime to make sure that you have something that is resilient through all of that. From an insurance standpoint, That ability that you have confidence in your system when it's running that is doing that which you expect it to do. We're rapidly moving from a world where the human used to be the key processor of all data, right? The human was in the loop. And in many ways, we're very comfortable with that. But decisions that are made in real time from an EMSO standpoint are candidly made faster than a human is capable of processing that data, digesting, and going ahead and responding to it, right? Radar pulses are measured in microseconds for a reason, maybe up to a millisecond. As a human, that's not even enough time for me to blink, let alone make a decision and do any sort of keystroke to go ahead and respond. And so with that in mind, our confidence that the system is doing what we want is in many ways very similar, I think, to the investments we're seeing around explainable AI and making sure that we understand not only what a system did, but why did it do it? And are we as a human comfortable with the logic and the analysis that went into it? From a demand and a new value standpoint, Earlier, I mentioned that only 1% of the microelectronics sourced, uh, produced globally are actually going into a military end application from a system standpoint. And so if you want to be able to really leverage that larger ecosystem, you have to look at ways to, uh, to change that demand curve. And so one of those possibilities is what does it mean to look at critical infrastructure more holistically? What really is critical? We may end up touching on that a little bit more later. But how do you generate more demand? And then lastly, from a value side, 
Like I said earlier, the intellectual property largely for the design side is in many ways resonant here inside of the United States. In comparison, the intellectual property from a fabrication standpoint and what it takes to fully go ahead and build that chip and actually put it into a package, much of that intellectual property is now overseas. And so from a value standpoint, how global do we want that supply chain to be? And where are we comfortable having core bits of that intellectual property in a way that allows us to meet our national security objectives? I like the point that they make, one of the many points that they make in this, and they talk about a lot of the solutions are geared to the supply side of the problem. You know, do we have enough of this? And they challenge stakeholders to look at the demand side. And so we, when we talk about supply chain fragility, there's also, I guess you could say, a demand chain fragility, you know, and how do we solve that aspect of it is, is very critical. And it's a different way of looking at it, I think, than, than gets a lot of attention in, in, in the news today. It's interesting, right? Going back to one of the things we touched on earlier around those foundational microelectronics going into a wheeled tactical vehicle or a jet engine controller. What's different about that microelectronics required for a military application versus a purely civilian? What's different about that for a ground vehicle versus a vehicle that, you know, we might drive here in today, right? And so ideally, we can end up with a lot of commonality in terms of the demand that the Department of Defense and that military end use is actually putting into the microelectronics ecosystem. At the same time, I think the same is actually possible in many ways when we look at many of the foundational investments the government made into to direct digitization. I remember when Pete Craig from the Office of Naval Research about 10 years ago put out his solicitation where he wanted 1 to 110 gigahertz, um, you know, broadband, completely tunable across that range and able to go ahead and process any of it. I remember when Bill Chappell was pushing for direct digitization for basically, you know, anything that you can bring in, let's just directly go ahead and digitize. And we're now reaching a point with tens of gigahertz sample rates with our analog to digital converters, our digital to analog converters, that in many ways we're seeing those foundational investments play out. But we also are beginning to see commercial utilization of that technology in ways that actually allows us to spin it back in for the aerospace and defense market and those EMSO capabilities that we're talking about today. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making, up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. 
This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products that benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels, but in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So in looking at the solutions that are out there, the possible solutions, we have to make some tough decisions on what to invest in, but also how to balance that investment because there's no one single solution that's going to fix this. So I want to go through a couple of different solution areas and get your thoughts on how we need to improve or balance investment in these. And, and I'm going to start with the most interesting, I think, probably to you and your background is, of course, being innovation and how we invest in innovation. So I would argue, right, that speed of how do we take something from a laboratory-grade idea and how do we move it to the fab, right? And so lab the fab you know, begins to set up kind of the first part of that. And so one of the things that I think is really exciting that really supports that zero trust architecture kind of ecosystem is that ability to reuse intellectual property and particularly doing so through two and a half D so-called chiplets. And so with that in mind, what you now are building is not the entire ASIC and not the entire system in one piece of silicon where one person actually has access to the entire design, but you're actually allowing for compartmentalization and specialization of each of the different modules that goes in. For those of us that came out of the electronic attack community, this feels very familiar to us, right? You used to have a front end, you used to have a dedicated mixed signal capability that would digitize that. You would then go into dedicated signal processing blocks, and ultimately you would put something up on the scope in front of an operator, allowing them to decide what they wanted to do. Today, with the miniaturization of microelectronics, that has kind of all gone on to a couple individual ASICs, but it's a couple pieces that really represent that core capability. For where we are, though, with kind of that lab technology that's been transitioning over the last five years, holistically across the semiconductor industry, with chiplets, you now actually allow someone to take a chiplet that is just the ADC, a chiplet which is just the digital analog converter, a chiplet which is just the dedicated digital signal processing that does unique things that we in the electronic attack community would care about, and then enough general purpose processing capability, likely a field programmable gate array, you actually can blend that through an interposer and end up with what appears to be one packaged part. But by doing that, it helps the fabrication side because yields go up because each piece of silicon is actually getting smaller. 
It also allows performance to go up because you now can optimize the heterogeneous material. If something is better on GAN, if it's better in silicon, better in indium phosphide, you can optimize for where you want that to be. And at the same time, you can optimize that design for what are the places where you get the most benefit for going to the most advanced, you know, number of nanometer silicon node that is out there today versus a dedicated DSP, which is working at high speed, is definitely streaming the data, but it may not need to be realized in each individual advanced nanometer node when each of those comes out. What changes does DoD need to make in terms of its acquisition R&D processes to really jump into that area and invest in those types of solutions? Because it seems a little bit to run a little bit counter to how they're used to developing uh, advanced technologies in the R&D so I would actually argue I don't think the DOD necessarily has to make any sweeping changes. I actually think it's going to be naturally the architects, the systems engineers at the, you know, the houses that specialize in building electronic um, attack systems are going to say, here is a better way to get leverage, to get reuse, to build a more affordable, more capable system faster. This is the right way to do it. From a speed standpoint, if you can take something that used to take five years to design an ASIC, and instead with a 2.5D base capability, you can actually go through and implement that design in 18 to 24 months, find me a defense customer and find me a, a you know, prime working in the, in the electronic world inside of electronic attack that doesn't want to shave three years off of their critical path of their program, everyone is obviously going to lean in and want to do that. Because that's imperative in today's warfighting. The competitive environment that we live in today, it is absolutely the right thing to do. And if the government was to receive two proposals and one said it's going to take five years and the other says it's going to take two, I, I feel pretty confident I know which one the government will have a strong preference for. And they'll figure out a way to get it done. Yep. A couple other solution areas uh, that come to mind in our discussion is, you know, one is, of course, use of subsidies and direct funding for various uh, sectors. And then also, you know, private public partnerships and collaborations, both trying to kind of facilitate that from the ground up approach to some of the some of these solutions. Could you talk a little bit about those? Absolutely. So subsidies as a as a taxpayer in the United States, I'm I'm always a little bit concerned candidly about the long-term viability of the approach, in particular when there's areas where the commercial market has something which is close, typically the commercial market will catch up and will pass. At the same time, there are things like directed energy where the power levels, the thermal management technologies that are required there are going to be unique to directed energy, right? And so fully embracing MSO as that full integration of electronic warfare and spectrum management, but with directed energy being part doctrinally of electronic attack, right? So there absolutely are areas where direct government investment is going to be required. At the same time, there may be areas where the government says, hey, I really value this, I really care about this, and they actually look to spin a technology from a defense application out into a larger commercial world. At the same time, though, the DOD has to be very open-minded to many of those technologies actually are going to come spinning in. Public-private partnerships. This, this one is interesting. And as we were preparing for this podcast, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And what has changed in the ecosystem? And would a public-private partnership, what would it take to be successful today? And so one of the, the earlier questions as we were going through and talking was really around, you know, what was the impact of COVID? And you identified, you know, kind of three major areas to think about that through. And so while over the last two years, it's really been the change due to COVID that has forced us all to respond very quickly and very dynamically to changes in our ecosystem, would a public-private partnership have been capable 
of making the necessary changes and getting the right agreements between the private side and the public side quickly enough to be able to adapt to the challenges that we've experienced during COVID. And so, right, full, full disclosure, I am very optimistic that we will never see another pandemic in our lifetimes that has anywhere near the scope. And so perhaps that's a worst case scenario to think about. But one could imagine a transition from a time of relative peace to a conflict would be a similar global disruption. And it would be a shame if the public-private partnership wasn't able to deliver at that exact moment because things about the agreement had to be changed in some way, shape, or form. And so I think we have to be very deliberate when we think about that, overcomable, but we have to go through with, a, uh, with an open mind and really plan for those. Now, in, in DOD, as well as Congress, you know, there, there's a number of uh, policy recommendations floating around out there. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what's going on in Congress here shortly, but I wanted to get your opinion on how we can address some of these problems from a policy perspective. So the policy one is obviously, having been in the Pentagon, right, um, policy is one of those levers that you have access to that, that you can move, that you can change how things are approached. Typically, through the lens of microelectronics, the first lever that people almost immediately jump to is thinking about a change in terms of what is critical infrastructure and can you change the demand, right? Going back to, uh, to the report from, uh, from Brian and Dan, as they were talking about the demand ecosystem, plenty of other people have written and talked about this as well. What's interesting, though, and so for those of us on the East Coast that were impacted earlier this summer by the, uh, the pipeline hack, from what I have been reading recently, it actually wasn't that the attack got to the industrial controllers that actually allowed for the flow of gasoline. It got into the billing and the accounting network of the company, and because they couldn't do the accounting to figure out who picked up how many gallons of gasoline where along the way, they actually shut down the flow of fuel up and down the East Coast of the United States. And so then the question is, well, what is critical? Is it the billing and accounting network? But when you think about all of the different things from my phone, from my computer that I'm doing online shopping on a daily basis, I'm interacting with a massive number of different, you know, billing and accounting-based systems on a very regular basis. And so I think we have to be very deliberate when we think about critical infrastructure. What is it that causes a business to interrupt their, uh, their flow of goods into the marketplace, and it may not be that industrial controller, which necessarily is what most of us mentally immediately think about that may actually drive that change. And so again, these are the things that I read about in the nights and the weekends, but I think we have to be deliberate as we think about that policy lever and what will be the intended, but also the unintended things if we make any changes there to try to generate more demand. One of the recurring themes that we address here on the, on the show through the various issues is this notion of government risk and the ability for DOD to accept a level of risk. That kind of risk acceptance level is starting to rise quite rapidly that they have to accept more and more to catch up to some of these problems. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what government needs to do and then how does government risk acceptance differ from industry risk acceptance? Another great question, and, and candidly, I think, you know, one of the things that professionally I really enjoy about my time both in government, understanding the government risk profile, as well as my time in industry and understanding what are the types of risks that, that industry is more broadly concerned about. The other thing I've actually been reading about a lot over the last couple of years is the history of the defense industrial base, which may sound like a bit of a, uh, a boring topic, but in many ways is actually really fascinating. And so when you look at the industrial base that we have today, it is in large part based off the way the government invested capital during World War II and continued to invest capital through the Cold War to build what we recognize today as the so-called DIB, the defense industrial base. And so over eight decades, there's a lot there. 
at the same time, I think there's actually a lot of really interesting innovation occurring around business models, and we're beginning to see new entrants largely in that electronic systems space critical for MSO that are beginning to enter the market, and as a function of entering the market are beginning to challenge that belief that growing a DIB company actually requires government capital. And so with that in mind, the balancing of who's taking risk and who's investing the capital and ultimately, you know, what is the, the appropriate kind of yeah, profit side for someone to end up with. With that in mind, I think it'll be really insightful and really interesting to see how these companies on the industry side end up growing and if they are able to be fully successful in the way that their investors are looking for them to be. From the government side of the, the problem, though, and the government side of the risk ecosystem, the reality is, is that the microelectronics ecosystem is going to continue doing a variety of things for, uh, for consumers, regardless of what the government says, hey, I would like to see this, or I would not like to see this. It's a, it's a global ecosystem, and there's global drivers that are definitely going to do that. And so with that in mind, with the acceptance that we live in a globally connected, globally distributed world, where this supply chain is going to remain global into the future on the basis of how we have built everything up, to have access to these modern technologies, I think that's the reality that we live in. What is an acceptable level of risk that the U.S. government or any government is willing to take, and how do they manage their way in terms of what they're investing in from inventory, call that a, uh, a strategic stockpile, and at the same time, where are they putting their bets down in terms of what are the raw materials they're going to need, what are the finished goods that they want to go ahead and carry in inventory, and how quickly can they energize a much larger part of the United States economy to get it there. And so that's very different, obviously, than just talking about cost plus fixed fee contract types and, you know, when is that appropriate to use from a risk standpoint. In many ways, I think what's happening in the commercial world of microelectronics, there is an adequate level of confidence in terms of what is the return on investment that you actually can find many companies willing to lean in from a contracts type in a much more aggressive way. So one of the challenges that we often run into with trying to solve major complex problems is that we tend to want to find an easy explanation, sometimes to the detriment of nuance, uh, which can lead us to ineffective or even counterproductive solutions. Uh, so what nuance to this issue are we not paying close enough attention to, and how might this be skewing our response? So I've thought about, thought about this and have a couple different, uh, couple different answers that I would offer there. And so the reality of this is it's a really complex topic. And so being engaged with kind of a defense-centric uh, complexity group in my spare time as well, anytime you have a complex system, typically when you poke on the system, it changes in some way, shape, or form. And so merely observing the system results in some sort of change in terms of how it is behaving. And so the, the first thing that I would hit on that isn't really necessarily nuanced, but I think is really critical that we haven't touched on is that stability of strategy, that stability of leadership, and the stability of the problem we're trying to solve. I think if we understand the problem we're trying to solve and we stick to it, there will actually be a lot of value that comes out of the far end. At the same time, the way that we have structured, in many ways, our ecosystem inside the United States, both on the government side as well as on the industry side, is the goalposts are often shifting. And this is going to be a really, really hard problem to solve if we start moving the goalposts midway through going through and doing it, just because of that complexity and how intertwined all the different stakeholders are. The second thing, though that I would offer is how can the Department of Defense and kind of that user actually be a better consumer and therefore be able to align with other demand signals in a better way? 
And so we touched on a little bit of that earlier, right? Just those basic microcontrollers going into vehicles and engines is absolutely one aspect of that. But I also think that larger trend around software-defined radios, around uh, direct digitization, begins to open up ways that MSO capabilities can explicitly actually end up better leveraging things that are happening on the commercial side anyway. We've talked a lot about you know, government response and, and the defense industrial-based response. And as always, there's always that third piece to this puzzle, and that's the role that Congress is going to be playing. And you know, they just recently brought to the floor that the House did on the National Defense Authorization Act for the next fiscal year. And there's some really good stuff in, in that bill and obviously addresses a lot of issues, but there are some provisions specifically on microelectronics. Two that caught my attention was, you know, establishing a national network for microelectronics research and development. And then, of course, the support for zero trust within DOD. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how Congress is responding to this and what role should they be playing moving forward? Another great question. And so with that in mind, you know, I, I think one of the things that will be interesting is both what happens in the NDAA, but ultimately what also happens in the appropriations side. As I learned during my tenure in the Pentagon, you, you need both of those rowing, uh, you know, rowing at the same direction at the same time to really be successful. So with that in mind, and really you know, answering the NDAA is the most recent piece that, uh, that has come out around that, right? The support for zero trust, I think, is Congress saying, hey, we understand where you're going. We understand why you're going in that direction. It makes sense to us. You have our back. I think is very powerful for the Department of Defense and for industry to say, we understand how this ecosystem is evolving and what is it going to mean to bring a trusted and secured microelectronic capability to the market in the future. And so to your point, right, Congress in many ways is the third leg of that stool. And the other one around the national network side, we've touched on intellectual property, obviously, as we've been going through the discussion today. And that intellectual property, that ability to bring together that appropriate network and be able to share things and transition things very quickly. Just the other day, I was talking with one of my peers at one of uh, the premier research institute um, universities that we have here in the U.S. around what are they doing with microelectronics? What are we doing with microelectronics? What are they doing in terms of generating that human capital that ultimately could come to work in the private sector and the federal sector? And what is there that we are looking for out of graduates that are going into those kind of ecosystems? And so with that in mind, again, Congress, I think, has a role to play there. And then the other one that showed up about a year ago through the CHIPS Act in a variety of ways is that realization that there is a Department of Defense need for this. There is a Department of Commerce kind of holistic competitiveness piece to it. And then there is a Director of National Intelligence Department of State role in terms of what are we doing internationally as well. And so I think over the last year, we've actually seen Congress acknowledge the full scope of this problem. I certainly think it's awesome when EMSO is a nonpartisan issue that both sides of the aisle can get behind. I'm really encouraged today with where we're at with microelectronics and how bipartisan the support is to address this challenge. Okay, well, that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you, Bill, for joining me. This has been a great discussion. I really appreciate it. And there's a lot we did not get to and we probably should get to in a future episode. So uh, this just means that we're probably going to have to have you back here in the near future. But I do thank you for your time and joining me today. Yep. Thanks a lot, Ken. As always, it's great to sit down and get to talk with you. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I again want to thank our episode sponsor, Northrop Grumman Corporation. Northrop Grumman's multifunction interoperable solutions create full spectrum superiority for our warfighters across all domains. Learn more at ngc.com slash EW. 
And finally, be sure to check out our website, crows.org, especially for details on our fast-approaching 58th Annual International Symposium and Convention, November 30th to December 2nd here in Washington, D.C. We are back in person, and we have an amazing agenda that you won't want to miss. Also, from the Crow's Nest podcast, we'll be at the convention, and we'll be sitting down with many of our speakers, so stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.